morning, church. Welcome to worship. Aren't you already glad that you've been in the house of God today? What a great time of worship already. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We'll begin reading there in just a moment. We're continuing this series, Too Good to Be True. One of my favorite life principles is what I call the expectation principle. Here it is. Most of life's frustrations come from unmet expectations that arise from poor communication. You've seen that play out in your marriage if you're married. Those times where things aren't quite gelling as they should. You're frustrated at one another. How often is it because someone's disappointed in what's taking place and yet when you find out what was expected, it was not communicated to you and you feel helpless and you feel like, how did I even get into this mess? It's true at your workplace, a a boss wants you to do something and yet they may not clearly explain what it is they want you to do and, and then when you don't do what they wanted you to do, you're in trouble. And that's what this principle is all about. It's not only true in our horizontal relationships though. It's also true in our vertical relationship with God. In fact, it's a little worse there because not only when we don't live up to God's expectations does it obviously cause frustration with Him. He is a holy God. It causes frustration within us because we know we're not living as we were meant to live. Things are not as they should be. That's why it's beneficial from time to time to open God's Word and to look in and ask this question. What does God want me to do? I mean, really, if I'm to please Him, if if I'm going to live for Him, what does that look like? What are the expectations? That's what we're going to talk about today. We've been walking through the book of Romans, and the book of Romans is Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and it's a letter that's all about salvation. Now, that's a church word that we use to describe what it means to have a relationship with Christ. Theologically, we refer to it as soteriology, the study of salvation, or the study around what it means to be saved. And so everything we've dealt with up to this point in the book of Romans has been around that topic. What does it look like? What does it take to be saved? And the answer is amazing. In fact, it's almost too good to be true. We've said that it's simple faith in Jesus Christ. That's what's required if you want to be saved. Your salvation is not based on what you do or your work or your earning. Your salvation is based on your faith that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that he did what he claimed to do. So you have to ask, uh, who did Jesus claim to be? Well, he claimed to be God. and, And that alone is something that separates us from most every other world religion. Jesus said that he was God. And what did he claim to do? Well, he claimed that through his death on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin and he purchased a place in heaven for us, empowering us to live for his glory here and now. When we look to Jesus in faith, we're saved. We're saved from the power of sin. We're saved from the penalty of sin. As we look toward heaven, one day we'll be saved from the presence of sin. That's what it means to run after Jesus, to follow him, to be saved. So as we started Romans 5 last week, we saw how those of us who are saved are described. What do we look like? Who are we? Well, we are people of peace. Why? Because we're at peace with God. And I just need you to understand, in a world of division and friction and and conflict, It is so good to know that I can be at peace with God. And some of you have come today or you're listening to these words and the greatest desire in your life is to have peace. But I would just tell you, you'll never have peace from God or or the peace of God until you're at peace with God. And that begins when you have a personal relationship with Him. And when you do, that changes everything. When you're saved, not only do you have peace, but you've got access Think about that. You have access to the Father. Paul's going to take us a place in Romans 8 where we learn that we are children of God. And as a, as a result, because we're children of God, we're heirs. We're heirs just like Jesus. That means that everything God has is available to us. 
It's like a father, like my five children, they are my heirs. So one day when I leave this world, uh, they will get everything I have. Pray for them, because right now that means they'd get a lot of debt. That would not be, whew. But your heirs, you have access to the things of God. Doesn't that excite you, church? Isn't that good? That's who you are. You have peace. You have access. And then you have joy. And I would just tell you, here again, I'm, I'm your friendly neighborhood pastor just trying to speak into your life and see, say some of you need that good dose of joy. You're not living as, as if you understood that when you were saved, it means you have joy in, in spite of the circumstances of life. Because you have the presence of Jesus. All of this comes as a result of what Jesus did for us. And remember, we, we read that last week. Let me just read this to you right now. What did Jesus do for us? It's the verses right before where we are in Romans chapter 5. It says in verse 6, you see at just the right time. Say just the right time. At just the right time when we were still powerless. Do you ever feel powerless? Christ died for the ungodly. That's you. That's me. We're not just unlovely. We're ungodly without Christ. But he died for us. Then we have just a factual statement. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. No. For a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. And then this verse. Man, you need to know this verse. You need to memorize this verse. Here it is. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Say, Christ died for us. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what gives you peace, and that's what gives you access, and that's what gives you joy. Jesus Christ died for you, and he did that not based on how good you were, because he did that even in the depths of sin that you are. Why? Because God loves you. Friend, I don't know what you've gone through this week, but there's nothing in your life that could cause God to love you less than he does in this moment. And hear this, there's nothing you could do to cause God to love you anymore. God loves you. That's who you are if you're a follower of Christ. Thank you, Jesus. Just say, thank you, Jesus. But what difference does it make, right? Jesus loves you and he died for you. Big deal if that's just fire insurance. If all this is just about that you've checked the box and now you're going to heaven. Is that what this is about? Or could it mean more? Could there be something God wants me to do? Well, that's found in our understanding of what it means to be saved. Remember, there are kind of three tenses to being saved. We are saved once and for all. We were saved by the blood of Jesus from eternal damnation. We were saved from the penalty of sin. We're being saved, though. That's sanctification. And we're being saved from that power of sin. More and more, I should look like Jesus. If you're a Christ follower and you've been a Christ follower, you should look more like Jesus today than you did yesterday because you're in process of transformation. You're being changed. And then thank you, Lord, one day we will be changed. That's glorification. We'll see Jesus face to face. We'll have no more hurts. There'll be no more weeping, no more tears, no more death. Can you praise him, church? That's going to be a great day. That eternal security is guaranteed in a moment, but that eternal transformation takes place over time. So that's what we're dealing with. How, how are we looking? Sometimes we check ourselves out in the mirror, right? What are we asking? How am I looking? You've got expectations. Most of us were raised in such a way you don't go outside of your house without looking the best that you can do. That's kind of what we're going to do today is look into God's word, the mirror of his word, and just say, how are we doing? If God has expectations of us, and he's communicated that to us through his word, how are we doing in light of those expectations? The key to understanding that is seeing what God's done for us. And what God has done for us is something that we call reconciliation. And that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time. Romans 5, beginning in verse 10. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, 
having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. Now, look at me. That's the most important thing you'll hear today. You've just heard God's word. The creator of all that is just spoke to you. Let's pause again in prayer and just ask him to implant that in our lives. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, speak. We've just heard your word. Faithful and true. Apply it to our hearts and minds so that we look differently, so that we do what you want us to do. And in the name of Jesus, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing, O Lord, in your sight, my strength, my redeemer. And just as you redeemed me, would you redeem someone today, reconciling them to you, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Those few verses that I read are eat up with one word, one root word, the word reconcile. Reconcile, reconciled, reconciliation. What does that mean? Most of us can understand that because we've had irreconcilable differences with someone, right? Do you know that's the number one thing that people put in divorce proceedings, that they had irreconcilable differences. They're saying there was something that separated us, that broke us, that damaged our relationship. We're not on the same page. We're not together, and, and we need to be made right. We need to be reconciled. In the Bible, this has very specific meaning. Did you know that you can have tools that help you understand different things in the Bible? I would encourage you to use those tools, commentaries, encyclopedias, dictionaries that were designed for that purpose. And there's one called the Baker's Bible Dictionary. So let me just read to you what it says about reconciliation. It says, reconciliation involves a change in the relationship between God and man or man and man. It assumes that there's been a breakdown in the relationship, but now there's been a change from a state of enmity and fragmentation to one of harmony and fellowship. Now, we understand this because we've been walking through Romans as the heart of the gospel. All of us were born separated from God. So that in and of itself is different from what some of you have been taught or understood. Some of you have said you, you've been taught that we're all God's children or that we're all good. That's not a scriptural message. The Bible says that you don't become a child of God until you begin a relationship with Him, and you're not good in and of ourselves. In fact, our heart, the Bible says, is exceedingly wicked because we're all sinners, and that sin separates us from God. It's broken the relationship. And unless that relationship is reconciled, unless it's fixed, unless it's restored, we're at enmity, the Bible says, with God. That means we're an enemy of God. So not only are you not a child of God, you're not, even, you're not even friends with God. You're an enemy with God. But God doesn't want that. And that's why we have that verse that I said, man, you need to be saying, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. But God demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The death of Jesus on the cross was the punishment for sin that you deserved. It was the punishment I deserved. And because he took our punishment, we can have forgiveness by his grace, and we can have life with God. That which was irreconcilable is reconciled because of Jesus. That begins to make sense, doesn't it? Reconciliation. In the Old Testament, a word that is used to describe this is the word atonement. In fact, if you were following along in the King James Version, that last word, reconciliation, says atonement. Why? What is it? Atonement. Well, atonement is like that word justified. Remember the word justified? We said it sounds like what it means. When you say the word justified, you can be reminded. 
When we trust Christ, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and look to what he did on the cross, it's just as if I'd never sinned. I've been justified. Well, atonement is another word that kind of sounds like what it means. When we are atoned, we are made at one with God. It's our at-one-ment. And in the Old Testament, atonement was a big deal. In fact, once a year, there was a day of atonement. That's still the most important Jewish holiday. What is it called? Yom Kippur. In the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement was when the high priest, once a year, could go inside the Holy of Holies. He could perform a blood sacrifice over the Ark of the Covenant. And that would be an atonement or at one for all the sins of all the nation of Israel, all the Jewish people. So understand what took place. If you wanted to be made right with God, you depended on the fact that that one day a year, the priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would do a sacrifice for you on your behalf every year. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says he became the atonement for our sin. The shed blood of Jesus happened once and for all, and the writer of Hebrews said, we no longer require the blood of goats and lambs, but we have the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Our sins have been atoned for, and we were reconciled with God. That's the hope of the gospel. Thanks to Jesus, we no longer need to be reconciled by that bloody bloody sacrifice. His blood did all that was needed. That's why we call it good news. So what difference does this make? If that's such a big deal, God, what do you want from me? Paul uses this same word again and again in another passage, in another letter, his letter to the church at Corinth. So I want us to look at that and really just... Pull away from Romans for a few minutes and talk about reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to these words, beginning in verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Now, church... I'm just telling you, if you are awake and you are a follower of Christ, that should have, that should have lit your fire. Do you hear what it says? Let's read that aloud together. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. Praise God for change. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. And he's committed to us that we have this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I look at that passage, and there's several things I see. Um, for one, I, I, I see that if we're reconciled, everything begins to look differently. Did you catch that? We see the world differently. If we're reconciled, we're different. We're a new creation. All the old's gone. Everything's become new. If we're reconciled, then we should live our lives with everyone we see saying, you've got to have what I've got. You need to be reconciled. Let me unpack that for you. First of all, here's the truth. God wants you to have a new point of view. God wants you to see the world through his eyes. If you've been reconciled, if you've been saved, you see the world differently. How about it? What comes to mind when you pass that homeless person on the street? How how do you respond when that person cuts you off in the road? Or they get in your way at Publix? What, What do you do when that neighbor just isn't being very neighborly? When the coworker doesn't even act like you're on the team? How 
How do you see the world around you? Jesus models this. The Bible tells us that he goes up on a hill overlooking Jerusalem. May have well been the Mount of Olives. I've stood there and you can see the whole city. It says Jesus began to weep as he looked at the city. He saw them through his eyes. He cried out to the Father and he said, they're, they're like chicks scurrying around without the mother hen. They're helpless and they're hopeless. How do you see the world? What, what's your point of view? Do you see people from God's perspective? Do you see everybody that is around you as somebody that needs the love and the grace and the mercy of God? Or are you a respecter of persons? Do you see people differently if their skin color is different from you, if their clothing, their background, their economic class is different from you, if their walk is different from you, if the choices they've made have put them in a place different from you? Do you see people through reconciled eyes? God wants you to have a new point of view, but there's a second thing. God wants you to be a new person. The only way you can have a, a new point of view is, is to be a new person. That's the point of that verse. That's why I want you to memorize it. I want you to shout it out. I want you to tattoo it on your heart. And for all I care, you can tattoo it on your forearm. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All the old has passed away. All things have become new. You're new. You're new. You were never changed. If you've not been made new, then make no mistake. It, it's hard to make a biblical case that you've been saved, that you've been reconciled. Because the Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, the old has passed away. All things have become new. Now, do we still mess up? Yeah. Because we're still sinners. Remember, we're in the process of being sanctified. We are being saved. But let me ask you a question. When you say that you were saved, when you say that you were reconciled, did your vocabulary change? Did some of your habits change? Did the way you spend your resources and you give to others, has that changed? Do, do you talk about your faith? Did that change? Does your love for the Word of God, did that ever change? Did your time in prayer has that changed? See, it's hard to reconcile that we're doing what God wants us to do if none of these areas of our life ever change. Doesn't mean we don't mess up, we don't blow it, we don't need God's grace, but there has to be a change some point where I bent the knee and I said, God, I surrender. I resign from control of my life. I yield control to you. You're in charge. And so the words I say, even my thoughts, they have to reflect you. And what I have, everything I have, you gave to me. So my monetary expenditures, they have to begin to reflect reflect what you want. And, and oh, by the way, what I do at work and how I treat other people, it has to be reflected of you because I'm not the same man. I'm not the same woman. I've changed. God wants you to be a new person. By the way, that's demonstrated every time we celebrate believer's baptism. In our last service, Kendall walked through the waters of believer's baptism and here's what happened. When she was ducked into that water, she was symbolically saying, I've been buried just as Christ was buried. In his death, I've died to my old way of life. But when she came out of the water, because we don't leave people under the water, when she came out of the water, she was raised to walk in new life with Christ. You're different. You're not supposed to be the same. That's why that symbolic gesture is so important. Jesus commanded us to be baptized. He modeled it. And throughout the New Testament, every time a person turns to faith in Jesus Christ, they are baptized like that. By the way, if you want to do that, you can join me this afternoon at the beach. I'd love for you to walk through the waters of believers' baptism because it's a beautiful testimony that you've been changed, that things are different from you. Now, 
Those are some pretty tough words. So let me just say, if you go through that inventory, if you hold up the mirror of God's word and you don't see those changes in your life, then maybe you've never been reconciled. Maybe you've never been saved. And you need to look to Jesus in simple faith. In fact, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. Maybe, maybe you've never understood that it's not about your religion. You could be Baptist, Catholic, Methodist, Episcopal, Lutheran, Assembly of God, non-denominational. It's not about these things we do in church like confirmation and catechism and communion and walking down aisles and lifting our hands. It's about a moment in my life where I've recognized that apart from me looking to Jesus, my life is hopeless and I'm separated from God. But because of Jesus, I can be reunited. If you've never taken that step, would you just bow your heads with me right now? All of us just bow our heads right where we are. You can cry out to God in your own words. But maybe you need some help. If you've never taken that step, maybe you just say this. Oh, Jesus, I need you. I want to be changed. I need to be changed. I'm a sinner. I need to be saved. I believe you died for me. (laughs) And I believe you're alive today, Jesus. So change me. Tell him, change me. Come into my life and take control. And here's your surrender. Say this, say, I'm yours, Jesus. For the rest of my life, I'm yours. Father, I pray that across this room are those who hear these words today or one day that your kingdom will be enlarged because of the prayers that have been prayed and the lives that have been changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, here's what the Bible says. It says God's word never returns void without making an impact. So I believe that what we just did resulted in eternity being impacted. Would you just praise God for changed lives? Isn't it exciting that God changes lives? Well, God wants you to have a new point of view. God wants you to be a new person. But here's what I really want to focus on. God wants you to have a new purpose in life. That's really the heart of the question, isn't it? What does God want me to do? What am I here for? What is this all about? What difference does it make? And and here's what we learned in that passage in 2 Corinthians 5. God called you to ministry. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God's called you to ministry. And that's like a wake-up call in and of itself for some of you today. Because you're thinking, oh, we know the pastor is called to ministry. And we think the worship leader is called to ministry. And sure, missionaries are called to ministry. But I'm just a Christian. And yet what What the Bible says is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God has given you a ministry. Did you hear that? Every follower of Jesus Christ has been given the ministry of reconciliation. How's it going for you? How's the ministry? Are you doing what he wants you to do? Say, what is, first I've heard of this, what's the ministry of reconciliation? How in the world do I do that? Well, he he outlines that for those of us like me who are a little slower. He, He says, I want you to be my ambassadors. Did you hear that verse? You're ambassadors for Christ. Now, I grew up in a Baptist church, and we had an organization for boys. It was called Royal Ambassadors, the RAs, the Royal Ambassadors. And, and we even had our own theme song. We're Royal Ambassadors, Ambassadors. Yeah, you didn't have that organization, did you? So, what does that mean? Does that mean little kids wear like a Boy Scout uniform and sing songs? What does it mean to be an ambassador for Christ? 
Well, just like their Bible dictionaries, we have the regular dictionary. So I looked in Webster Dictionary. I said, what is an ambassador? An ambassador is a diplomatic agent of the highest rank accredited to a foreign government or to a sovereign as to the resident representative of his or her own government or sovereign or appointed for a special and often temporary diplomatic assignment. So because of our mission relationship, I've been to Paris many, many times, and, and one of the walking tours that I'll do almost every time I'm in Paris takes me right by the United States Embassy. And anytime you go by any of our embassies, you're going to pass a United States Marine posting guard. It's here for the Marines. You're going to see a United States Marine posting guard, and, and, and in that building, in that embassy, you've got a person who's been appointed by the President of the United States and confirmed by the Congress of the United States to represent the United States wherever they are, even though that's not their country. It's not a French citizen that's the ambassador from the U.S. to France. It's an American citizen. They're in a different country, but they're representing their home country. And it's just temporary because when the next president comes, guess what? They've probably got a friend that they want to be in that position. But while you're in that position, you had better represent well. Well, here's what the Bible says. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not in this world or you're in this world, but you're not of this world. This world is not your home. C.S. Lewis said, if you feel like you're homesick for another place, it's because God has not created you for here. He created you with eternity in your heart. And because of that, you're going home one day. But until that day, somebody say, until that day. Until that day, we're ambassadors We've got to represent. We've got a temporary assignment, but our assignment is to represent well the one who has sent us, to make a difference where we are for his glory. You and I are on a temporary assignment representing our sovereign God on this side of heaven. He wants us to be different because we're reconciled. So let me just wrap this up and tell you how that looks. Reconciliation should instruct our walk. I think I've tried to make that clear. We walk differently. We wonder why the church doesn't seem to be the salt and light in our culture. Could it be that many that claim to be a part of the church have never been reconciled? Because if we've been reconciled, we, we walk differently. I'm not talking about our gait, our strut. I'm talking about how we look. So again, we're, we're looking in the mirror, right? We're, we're seeing if we're all right to go outside. That's our task today. So um, at your workplace, are there some things that make you look differently than just everybody else because of your faith in Jesus? In, in the classroom, do you respond and, and treat people and act differently because of your relationship with Christ? In your neighborhood, do, do your neighbors see, hey, they're different. I, I don't, I'm not sure I understand them, but I like what I see in them. They're different. You see, reconciliation, it, it's got to instruct our walk. Because if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old things have passed away, all things have become new. But here's the big one. Reconciliation should inform our witness. How's your witness? You know, what is a witness? A witness is anyone who can testify to what they've seen, heard, or experienced. And, and so when we talk about that in terms of our faith, what we're saying is, because I have experienced reconciliation, because I've experienced God's grace and forgiveness, because I've experienced the hope of heaven... What I say and do is different. So how do we do that? Well, sometimes it's through our ministry, right? And so on Friday night over at our Six Mile campus, do you know that we had 70 people come into that old building and they got a hot meal prepared by some ambassadors like you on your behalf. And they heard the gospel. But beyond that, did you know that another team of ambassadors like you, they went out 
And 250 homeless people were fed on the streets on Friday evening by you. But that's not it. There are about another 35 that are not homeless, but they're homebound. Their, their sickness or their situation keeps them in. And, and, and we took meals to their house. But, but not just that. There are another 250 to 300 meals that were sent out from our pantry because of a desire to minister in the name of Jesus. There are hundreds of students all across the elementary schools around us that are getting backpacks of school supplies because someone like you is being an ambassador. And I could go on and on. There are people in our church that have foster children in their home or they've adopted children because they see this ministry of reconciliation. What's your ministry of reconciliation? How are you living it out? But he says, not only do you have the ministry of reconciliation, you've got this message of reconciliation. There should be something that's coming off of your lips because you've been reconciled. You know, often there's quoted a, a saying that says something like this, share the gospel and if necessary, use words. Let me just tell you something. It's necessary to share the hope of the gospel. How can I do that without saying you were, you were separated from God because of your sin? You had irreconcilable differences, but God loves you so much that he demonstrated his love that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. Jesus died for you, and he wants you to have hope. He wants you to have help. He wants you to have heaven. I got to use my words to say that. So if you're reconciled, you've got to be sharing the message. How do you do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let me just give you a half a dozen ways. Maybe you would stop by today and pick up one of these yellow bands. It's got Romans 1.16. This says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So if you wear this, just know what you're saying is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. So don't wear it and be ashamed of the gospel. But it's got some symbols on here. It's got the symbol of a person. And it just reminds us that all people are separated from God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all separated from God because of our sin. We all need him. Then it's got some scales, like the scales of justice. And that just reminds us that no matter how good we are, it's never going to tilt in our favor because just one sin separates us from God and we're all sinners. Then it's got a crown because it's in a moment like that that I need to realize there is a God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and he has the power to do whatever he wants. And so then I see the cross and that cross reminds me that that God who is King of kings loves me so much that even though I'm still a sinner, Jesus Christ died for me. That's the hope. So I can share the message of the gospel just by wearing this yellow armband and people asking me what it is. I, I can share the hope of the gospel by taking one of these cards that's on your seat. It says, please enjoy this as an act of kindness. This is a simple way. It's got too good to be true on one side. and You can go through one of our fast food restaurants or a Starbucks or a Dunkin' and you can pay for the car behind you. and put, You can leave a good tip at lunch and leave this and just putting the gospel out there. But you can also pick up uh, one of these little cards. Or if you don't like the yellow band, pick up an arm band that's got all the colors of the rainbow on it. And just walk through these and see how it talks about sin and death and love and faith and life. You, you don't like that? You're a little more old-fashioned? Pick up one of these tracks that says, uh, do you know for certain that you have eternal life and that you'll go to heaven when you die? Very direct. A little booklet. And you can just read through and walk through. You don't like that? Everybody loves Billy Graham. Use Billy Graham's favorite track, Steps to Peace with God. And just talk about how everybody desires peace and how they can have peace. You need it more simple than that? Okay, well then pick up this one sheet of paper that just reminds you that you can think of the word Lord. And that word Lord reminds us that L is for love and O is for offenses. We all have offenses. It's called sin. And R is for remedy. We've got a remedy. That's Jesus. And D is for decision. We're not going to benefit from the remedy unless we make a decision to follow Jesus. Or then you can pick up this little book and I've taught you how you can draw three circles on a napkin and tell somebody how they can find Jesus in a broken world. I'm just telling you, you don't have to have a theological education. Shoot. You don't have to have a Sunday school education to be a witness of the reconciliation that God has given you. So how you doing? Are you doing what he wants you to do? You know why there are empty seats in our church and churches all across Tampa and around our country? It's because we've, we've gotten off mission. We've gotten more focused on 
celebrating who we are or our race or our preferences. We've gotten focused on politics and all the issues of today. And we've gotten off mission. We've got to get on mission. And we don't always feel like it. Monday morning, I got up earlier than the rooster gets up. And, and I was on an airplane and landed in Brooklyn, New, New York. I was with my friends, Pastor Zach, Pastor Andrew, and my friend, Pastor Mike. And we knew we needed to take an Uber to get into to Brooklyn. So I scheduled the Uber. We showed up. We realized our driver's name was Shake. And so I got in the back seat, and, and me and Pastor Andrew and Pastor Zach, we were packed in there like sardines in the back seat, and Pastor Mike got in the front. Well, we hadn't even gotten out of the garage, and Pastor Mike saying, Shake, where are you from? Shake had no idea what he was about to endure for the next 30 minutes. <laughs> he said, I'm from Pakistan. He said, great, Shake. Uh, I'm so glad you're here. How about your family? Do you have a family? And we just spent a few minutes getting to know him. And then he asked him about his faith, and he said, oh, no, I have a pure Muslim faith. He said, what do you mean by that? And he began to talk about his faith, and we began to understand that, that he really didn't mean that. He had a Muslim faith that he had studied, that he understood, and that was important to him. And Pastor Mike began to talk to him because he was in the front seat. We were just the sardines in the back seat. And, and so he was talking to him, and he was telling him about how we are Christians, and we follow after Jesus, and that Jesus did something we could never do. And he even asked Sheikh about, you know, how, do you know for sure you can go to heaven? And of course, what Sheikh said is, no, nobody can know that. And we said, yeah, you can. But then what Sheikh didn't realize is I had the gospel Gatling gun next to me. <laughs> Pastor Zach. So he was talking about all this Muslim theology and Pastor Mike was doing the best he, he, he could. And I just tapped Zach on the shoulder and let him know that he was caught in from the bullpen. <laughs> and he leaned forward and he began to quote the Quran to Sheikh, and, and he began to tell him how our theology is different. And let me just tell you something. Sheikh didn't begin a relationship with Christ that day, but he heard the gospel. He heard the hope of reconciliation that's made possible through Jesus. And even though it was a weary Monday morning, we stayed on mission. Hey, here's what I want us to do. Let's pause right now, and let's just pray for Sheikh that he would become a follower of Jesus. Father, in your name, we lift up Shake to you. Lord, we don't know where he is. He could be driving in this moment. Lord, we pray that you would intervene in his life, that you would draw him to you, Jesus, that you would use dreams or visions or whatever means necessary to make him aware that you are the hope of heaven that he needs. Lord, thank you for that moment that we had in the car where we pray that you'd give him the peace of God today because he makes peace with you. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. My brothers left a little earlier than me, so I was getting in an Uber late Wednesday afternoon, leaving a couple of days of meetings, heading to another city in another state for another couple of days of meetings. And man, I was exhausted. I could hardly keep my eyes open. But as I sat down in the back seat of that Uber with Roberto, I, um, I remembered Shake. And so we got just a couple of blocks away from the hotel, and I said, hey, Roberto, right? He said, yeah. I said, where are you from? He said, I'm from Brazil. I said, oh, man, one of my best friends, his name's Eliel, is from Brazil, and I've been there. I said, what city are you from? He said, Rio. And I'm like, yeah, a lot of people from Rio. I said, I've been to Curitiba, and I've been to Iguazu Falls down in the south of Brazil. He said, yeah, those are great places. We talked a little bit about his family, figured out we had something in common. You know, he, he has a, um, a child that's in their late 20s and one that's about 10 or 11. <laughs> I can relate to that. And so um, we talked, and, and I said, hey, Roberto, are, are you a person of faith? He said, yeah, I, I really am. I said, who is your faith in? He said, my faith is in Jesus alone. And I thought, oh, thank you, Jesus. And we talked a little more, and I just confirmed that. You know, sometimes you're going to have somebody like Shake, and they don't know the gospel, and they may not respond. Sometimes you're going to be a witness, and you figure out you've got another brother in Christ. But your job is to be that witness right where you are in your little corner of the world. How are you doing at your job? How are you meeting the expectations that God has for you? Well, reconciliation instructs our walk. Reconciliation informs our worship, but I want you to understand, our, our witness, but I want you to understand reconciliation should inspire our worship. And worship is so much more, 
It's so much more than what we do in an hour and a half on Sunday morning. Worship is who we are as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's, it's us looking to what God has done for us and letting what He has done for us just inspire us to praise His name. How, how can you look at the things God has done and not praise His name? I look out at some of you, some of the stories and how he's helped in your marriage, how he, he's helped in your finances, how, how he's helped in your healing. I'm overwhelmed as I look today at my, my brother Rick Estes, who was deep in despair. And yet God brought him up out of the pit. He's given healing to his life. And today, what has he done? He's come together to worship that's what worship is. That's how he ends chapter 5. He talks about rejoicing in who the Lord is. Look at verse 11. Not only is this so, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now receive reconciliation. We rejoice not because we always feel like it, but we rejoice because of the faith we have in what God has already done. Worship's not simply a depiction of our feelings. It's a declaration of our faith. We worship our way into feeling like worshiping Him. And we do that because He did what we could never do. You see this reconciliation that affects our walk, that affects our witness, that affects our worship? We have no hope of that without Jesus. We have no hope of reconciliation without that act of the Father who demonstrated his love and that while we were yet sinners, his son Jesus died. I think of the love of the Father toward us and I, I think of one of my favorite stories of all time. It's the story of Dick and Ricky Holt. Ricky was born with cerebral palsy. Actually, when he was born, the doctors advised his parents to put him in an institution. And they said no. In fact, Ricky grew up and he could communicate with his parents basically through a computer. And he, he came to the point, he told his dad he wanted to run a race. His dad thought to himself, Rick, Ricky can't ever run a race. But then he realized there was a way. And so Ricky ran a race. He completed the Hawaiian Triathlon in 1989, a 2.4 mile swim, a 112 mile bike ride, and a 26 mile marathon. That wears me out and makes me sweat just reading that. And he finished right there with his dad. Who carried him all the way. Dick, the father, died a couple years ago and all the world took notice. Watch this. Finally, a father loved by his son by an entire city. He defined America strong. Dick Hoyt and his son Rick were a team. Father and son for years competing in the Boston Marathon. That father pushing his son the entire way. We have followed their story for years. Rick was born paralyzed. The doctors telling his parents, you should consider putting your newborn in a special care facility. We cried, but we talked and we said, no, we're not gonna put Rick away. We're gonna bring Rick home and bring him up like any other child. Dick and his wife, Judy, did just that. Sports, school, communicating through a computer. And it was back in 1977, Rick asked his father if they could run in a charity race together. Dad said he was out of shape, but that he would do it. When we got home that night, Rick wrote on his computer, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like my disability disappears. So that was a very powerful message to me. And so they kept running and running. The Boston Marathon 32 times, the statue in their honor near the starting line. More than a thousand races in all, Ironmans too. Dick towing his son on a raft. I'm amazed at what I'm doing. I'm running faster now when I'm 60 years old than when I was 18 years old. His son Rick is now 59, and his father, who was 80, passed away overnight. Rick's brothers breaking the news to him, and it was Rick who gave his father the biggest gift. I think that Rick has, you know, really made me fulfill my life as a father. It's the secret. Just having a great son, I guess. We celebrate Dick Hoyt family tonight. I think about that story and I realize, yeah, I give God praise just for how he works in people's lives. I, I think about the fact that all the self-help books in the world wouldn't have helped Ricky run those races. 
He could only do that because of the love and the strength of his father. That's true of your reconciliation with God. No matter how hard you try, you'll never make this happen on your own. But when you look to Jesus, he carries you. He takes you disabled by sin and self, and he carries you all the way. That's why. That's why there have to be moments in our life where we just stop and say, Thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You're worthy. What does God want from you? He wants your walk. He wants your witness. And he wants your worship. But if I could sum it up, I would just say this. He wants all of you to be about all of him. So I wonder if we can demonstrate that in the moment. I wonder if we can just spend a few minutes not worrying about the clock, not worrying about what's next on our schedule, not worrying about who's around us, but just looking to the one who reconciled us and let him know he's worthy. He's worthy of it all. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. And then when I finish praying, we're just going to worship. And you can worship sitting down. You can worship standing up. You can worship coming around the stage and just kneeling here. You can worship. There'll be pastors here that will pray with you. If you're a lady and you'd like a lady to pray with you, we'll find a lady to pray with you. But we just want to worship the Lord and let him know how worthy we feel that he is. Is that okay? Is that all right, church? So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we just want to say, oh, God, you're worthy. You're worthy, Lord Jesus. You're worthy to have control in our marriage. You are worthy to have control of our finances. You're worthy to have control of our education. You are worthy to have control of our bodies and the habits. You're worthy to heal us, Lord. Oh God, you're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of everything we could give to you. You're worthy of our time. You're worthy of our sacrifice. You're worthy of our minds. Oh God, you're so worthy. Oh Jesus, I pray that in these moments you hear our desire just to declare our faith in you. That when we feel unworthy, you are worthy. That when we feel like failures, you are the one that have picked us up and turned us around. You put our feet on solid ground. Lord, when we're in the pits of despair and all the things that get to us in life, you're worthy. We praise you, Lord. We worship you. You're worthy of it all.